All right. Is that a good question? What is your purpose? We won't circulate with a microphone and put you on the spot about that. But obviously, we do want you to think about that. What is your purpose? And where do you get that? What's the source of telling you the significance of your life? Well, obviously, in this place, we believe that everybody has a purpose and that it is a God-given, God-breathed, God-dreamed kind of purpose and mission in life. And we're going to spend the next few minutes talking about that. And we're going to invite you to allow God to speak into your own heart and into your own mind about that. So maybe you want to whisper a prayer right now that just says, Lord, would you speak? Give me ears to hear what you would say. Next month, February, I will celebrate my 34th year in ministry. Last month, December, was my 31st anniversary as an ordained pastor. I discovered God's purpose for my life early. Obviously, really early, because I'm still so young. But uh, I'm so grateful that at a young age, I was 18, that I began to get a clue. This is what God wants to do with me. Now, that's not uh, something that is reserved to the area of being ministers or pastors that, that God gives you a clue. That's for everyone. It just so happened that my deal was ministry. Your deal is something else. And what is that? And how well are you leaning into that and accessing power from beyond yourself, from God, to carry that out? Because, friends, uh, by all means, and, and here's the exhortation of the day, we don't want you to waste your life. There's a lot of good things that can be happening, and, and it's all nice to be happy and to make some kind of contribution to humanity and to have fun along the way. No problem with all that. But if that is all there has been to it, when you draw your last breath, frankly, you will have wasted your life. Because if the purpose of life is to live in concert with God throughout life, and I fail to do that, then I've wasted the one and only life that He gave me. So what is that purpose for you? When I first uh, began serving in ministry, uh, the first two places I served, I served as a youth pastor. And uh, I was just convinced, as I remain today, that God has a purpose for everyone and that He has gifting and, and abilities and resourcing that He does for everyone to carry out their purpose and their mission in life. And so I would just lay into young people about that. And I would tell everyone from you know 13 to 18, God's got a plan. Find His plan. Let's get in on His plan. Let Him fill you and empower you and, and inspire you. And, you know, that, really, that message played really well with kids and the parents of kids. They wanted their kids to kind of get in on that. When I was uh, 22, I had my first senior pastor opportunity. And uh, God called me to a rural area in West Tennessee, literally out in the middle of nowhere. I had chickens and guineas in my yard, and we were 11 miles from the nearest town of about 3,000 people. And so I was nowhere. I mean, you could not find me if you wanted to find me in those days. My parents tried. They couldn't. <laughs> so I was just as convinced 
in that church as a young senior pastor that God had a purpose for every life in that place as I was in those youth pastor places. Now, the church I was serving in rural West Tennessee was 147, year old, 147 years old when I got there. And so it had been around for a while. Had a little history to it. And most of the people there were in their 60s and 70s. I was 22. The next closest in age to me was 35. And then it drastically went up from there. And so you can imagine as a 22-year-old coming in and just saying all this about what God wants to do with your life and let's get in on it and let's don't miss it and let's don't waste it and so on. It was met with, well, isn't that nice? He is so young and exuberant. He is so passionate. Everybody needs to have passion like that when they're younger. And the fact of the matter was, a lot of them, had kind of quit living. They were in retirement years, and they had cut back way big time on the schedule and on the uh, um, responsibilities and so on, which is fine. Everybody can reach a point in time where you don't punch a clock and you don't put in the hours for the vocation like you always did. But to retire from life is a waste. And that's what these guys were doing, by and large. There were certainly some exceptions. And I think what we're talking about is that when that happens, you begin to live this kind of domesticated life. It's like God fills you and stirs you and charges you and powers you and calls you to be this adventurous, in His image kind of person. And we make all these life choices and all these decisions that diminish and domesticate this fiery thing that God does in us. Now, I like going to the zoo as much as anybody. But really, it's kind of sad to go to the zoo when you look at these, in the wild, ferocious lions and tigers and so on like that who have been domesticated. Who can't even... I mean, they sleep all night and then what are they doing when, they, when you get there? They're napping during the day. To have that kind of domesticity is just a waste. It is a misplacement and a misspending of our lives and who we are. Now, back in Israel's history, there were a number of occasions where the domesticating of life was taking place. In one particular time, Saul was king of Israel, and they had a number of enemies, but they had one in particular that he needed to lead his people in battle against. And guess what? He couldn't figure out if he was supposed to go fight or not. He couldn't, he couldn't figure out if they were supposed to go and engage this enemy in battle or not. And while he is living this kind of domesticated state in his rulership, his son, Jonathan, had a clue. His son, Jonathan, said, what, are we nuts? Let's go. And he couldn't muster up anybody to go with him because he wasn't king. So he just took his personal attendant. And the two of them went to the enemy's encampment with basically this prayer on his lips. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. 1 Samuel 14.6 He didn't have this sure-fire mandate where God says, you take this step and I will bless you every step of the way and I'll protect you and no sword will fail you and you won't uh, shed any blood or anything like that. There was no promises, no guarantees, no surety 
just this sense that God was about him engaging in a battle. And so he said, maybe God will act. Let's go see. And friends, that kind of audacity, that kind of risk-taking, that kind of adventurous spirit is what has been true for men of God and women of God through all the ages. And that's a part of the DNA of the beginning of this church. This church was founded 19 years ago with no people, no money, no buildings, no nothing except for this sense that God said, I want to start a church and I'm going to have you and some others play a part in that, Scott. And I want it to happen on the east side of Seattle. And on and on the story goes. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. We had no guarantees. We didn't know what was going to happen. So just to be clear, friends. When we talk about any step of initiative in the name of God. That is a warring, battling kind of thing to do. Because you understand, right? That there is an enemy to our Lord and an enemy to our soul who is at war with God and those who claim to be on God's side. And when someone comes along and says, you know what, let's start a church in Redmond. That's not a nice thing to do. That's an invasive, audacious, warfaring kind of thing to do. Because this, the Bible says this world belongs to our enemy. And any time a church starts, and any time people are drawn toward God, and any time people decide to be followers of Christ, they have more or less escaped from the clutches of an enemy and been embraced and delivered by a Lord and a Savior. And now we are on His side fighting the battle against His and our enemy. God never intended that the church would be this collection of nice people living moral lives doing nice things in the world so that we better all get along. That's a domesticated image of what God is up to and who He is. Now, just to be clear about the enemy, Ephesians 6.12 says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We're not talking about being enemies with people and different philosophies and and idiosyncrasies and all that kind of stuff. We're talking about a spiritual enemy who's an enemy of God as well as ourselves. It's not against flesh and blood. It's against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Any step taken for God is a step taken against our enemy. And it does not happen without consequences. It does not happen without risk. It does not happen without us taking hits in life. When Jonathan stormed up a hill with one other guy against an entire army, do you think somebody shed a little blood? Absolutely. Now, here's the truth about a lot of church-going people. 
a lot of church-going people treat the following of Christ like a fairy tale. Like a storybook account. And once upon a time, there was a young man or a young woman, and life was hard. And when life got hard, a wonderful, beautiful, nice God came along and sprinkled magical dust and waved a magical wand and poof, no more problems. And they lived happily ever after. That's the way we treat the Christian faith. And friend, that is a sick, perverted heresy of the truth of Jesus Christ. Once upon a time, God was at war with the enemy of this universe. And the enemy was seeking to rob heaven of all the glory of God. And God would have none of it. And when He could not successfully come against the Almighty, He began to come against that which the Almighty loved. People. Humanity. And in succumbing humanity in the Garden of Eden, so that we engaged in a coup against God, and we rebelled against God, and we insulted God, and we made ourselves enemies of God, He won forever the right to rule and reign over this world. And it's only by the persistent pursuit of God that we get set free from the entrapments of our enemy. And we join the forces of God. And it's tough and hard and risky and bloody to do the work, the will, and the life of God. Now, if you're not familiar with Hebrews 11, that has got to be one of those most read, most marked up, most uh, bent up pages in your Bible. You've got to know what's in Hebrews 11. And I'm not going to go through the whole thing. I just want to read one little excerpt for you beginning in verse 33, where it's talking about all the men of God, all the women of God, people of faith, people who were on mission, people who knew their purpose and were living it out through, through the ages. This is what it looked like for a lot of them, uh, beginning with verse 33. Who through faith, they conquered kingdoms, they administered justice, they gained what was promised, they shut the mouths of lions, they quench, quenched the fury of the flames, they escaped the edge of the sword whose weakness was turned to strength, who became powerful in battle and who routed foreign enemies. Well, so far that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Women received back their dead, raised to life. Amen. Let me in on that story. But it continues. Others were tortured, refused to be released, so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging. While still others were chained and put in prison, they were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were put to death by the sword, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. That was the lifestyle of the faithful. And they wandered in deserts and mountains, in caves, in holes in the ground. They didn't have nice homes with manicured lawns in the suburbs driving two SUVs in a bank account that wasn't threatening them. Now again, I'm, there's nothing wrong with being able to have those blessings. But it's our purpose to see 
how those blessings fit into what God's up to with us. What are we supposed to be doing with all that He has blessed us with? We are the reflection of His glory. We're here as a witness to what we have seen, that He is a good, redemptive, saving, blessing God. But you know that that ancient Greek word for witness is the same as martyr. It's the same word. To be His witness is not painless and cost-free. What we're talking about, friends, is being missional. Where we have a clear sense, not only that we belong to God, but that He has a purpose and a plan to accomplish through this life, through your life, through our lives. And that we set off to live on mission. You say, Scott, are you talking about me like being a missionary? You want me to like go to China or Africa or something like that? Yeah. Every Christian. Every Christian. A missionary. Now, whatever the specifics of God's purpose and mission for you are, I don't know the specifics. I do know the general. The general is that every follower of Christ is a missionary, on-mission person for Christ. And the only reason in the world Why you shouldn't go to China, or to Africa, or to India, or to South America. The only reason in the world why you shouldn't is because God said, I want you on the east side of Seattle, and I want you to be my missionary there. That's the only reason I'm here. If God did not want me here, I'd be somewhere else. Not because I don't like it here, but because I am His son, His man, His servant. I'm at His pleasure and bidding. I'll be anywhere He wants me to be doing anything He asks me to do. How about you? He hasn't called us to be just nice people doing nice things, making it a nice world. Jesus said, I've come to bring fire to the earth. It's a warring place. I've got enemies all over the place. So I've come to bring fire to the earth. I wish that my task were already completed, he said. There is a terrible baptism ahead of me, and I am under a heavy burden until it is accomplished. Do you think I've come to bring peace to the earth? No. I have come to bring strife and division. I've come to make people choose sides. From now on, families will be split apart. Three in favor of me and two against, or the other way around. There will be a division between father and son, mother and daughter, mother-in-law and daughter-in-law, etc. Luke 12, 51-53. That's why He came. And so the Christless world that wants to pigeonhole and put Jesus in a box of domesticity, isn't He a nice Jesus? Isn't He a sweet Savior? A little baby in the manger. Cows and animals bow down to Him. And little shepherd boys. No, this is a King of kings. Lord of lords. The Almighty Ancient One for everlasting days. 
the sovereign one. Who says, if you follow me, I'll give you life. I'll deliver you from the evil one and from death. But you'll also engage in my mission and my purpose because you're my man. You're my woman. That was the mentality of a guy who lived a long time ago by the name of John Knox. Precursor to Presbyterians. Who was so possessed by the person of Christ and the mission of Christ that he felt like God planted him in Scotland. And he said, I'm here at God's bidding. I'm here at God's pleasure. I will give my life for what God's up to in Scotland. Give me Scotland or I die. Give me Scotland for Christ. Let me see people turn to Christ. Let me see people uh, delivered from darkness and, and set free in the light. Give me that or I die. And that's how he spent his life. That's how he invested himself there. Friends, that is our heart. That needs to be our heart. Give me my family or I die. I pray for my lost family members. I pray for those that are outside of Christ. I love them. I want to see them know you the way that I know you. I want to spend eternity with them as we spend it with you. Give me that or I die. Give me my friends or I die. Give me Redmond, the east side, the Puget Sound, or I die. That's why we're here. Now, how does that play out for us? How do we know if this church, this local gathering of followers of Christ, is on track with that? Friends, there's all kinds of little measuring marks out there that churches have. And if you just kind of accept what the culture says, oh, there's a great church, or there's a successful church, then you may not be on the same page with what God's up to with this church. How do we be Christ in this community? How do we carry out His purposes and His mission and His plans through this fellowship? Well, there are at least these three emphases that we need to have a lot of clarity on. And one is this, that we have a movement from just being attractional to being incarnational. And by that I mean this. We want to be attractive. We want people to see this is a winsome place. This is a place where God shows up. There's something extraordinary and special about this. And so guess what? We have a presence on the web. We sometimes take out ads in the local newspapers. We sometimes spend a good bit of money and we'll send out a mailing piece to people all over the area to let, us, let them know here's a place that you'd be welcome to come to. We'll sometimes put on a special event like a few weeks ago with our dessert theater and we'll say, hey, come and we'll have these friendship, fun type of opportunities. But friends, that attractional, that attracting kind of way is supplemental and secondary always to the incarnational, which primarily is about you being a Jesus man or a Jesus woman wherever you go. 
Just as he incarnated himself in the child 2,000 years ago, he continues to incarnate himself in you and in me, and we carry his presence into our workplace. We carry his presence into our schools, into our little recreational type things and, and kids leagues and all that kind of stuff, into our, our uh, social circles, civic organizations. We carry the presence of Christ with us wherever we go. And in doing so, we seek to reflect His glory. We'll do that with our words. We're not going to try to be obnoxious. We're not going to try to be offensive. We're not going to try to be off-putting. But we need to be honest and say, God's good. And if that offends someone, they're offended. That means we not only carry ourselves as a witness with words, but with our works, with our deeds. And we will invest ourselves in a number of ways to bless this community in the name of Jesus. Why are you doing these things for us, Scott? Why is your church investing itself in children's booths at Derby Days, or serving meals to homeless on the street, or to uh, try to reach out to language groups that are struggling with English, etc. Why are we? Because of Jesus. We love Him and He loves you. So that's why we do it. From attractional to incarnational. That's how we know if we're on track. How many of us are being incarnational? How else do we know if we're on track? When we go from a concern about seating to sending. A lot of churches gauge their success about how many seats are filled in a Sunday gathering. You know what? That's important. I care about that. I'd love to see every seat filled with someone worshiping Jesus. I pray for all the churches in Redmond and the Puget Sound that more seats would be filled with worshiping people. That's a high value to me. But of greater value is how many will actually be sent. How many of us will go? How many of us will be on mission in all these arenas? Family, work, social, schools, recreational. Etc. Will we be sent by Him into these arenas? That's the determiner of whether this church is on track or not. How many of us are engaged? And then I'll say in the third place, where we go from decisions to disciples. Now, almost every week we invite you to make decisions. And sometimes we invite you to use that connection card and you register decisions. We pray for you about that. Sometimes we open the altar and we have an altar call and we invite you want to come and give yourself freshly to God in some kind of way, come to this altar and bow before Him and repent and give yourself to Him. Friends, let me tell you something. If we only said, hey, gosh, we had 10 people come to the altar this past week. We must really be doing well. Or we had 75 turn in a connection card and they made these commitments. We must be really doing well. No, it's not gauging how many decisions are made. But how many are actually living out discipleship? How many followed through on a decision? How many are now more consecrated? How many now are more given, more prayerful, more servant types, more passionate about the faith? Disciples.
Yeah, I saw Clint Eastwood this past week. Some of you probably took in some holiday movies. I took in, after much pleading with my wife, Grand Torino with Clint Eastwood. Um, and it is filled with uh, unsuitable language. And so by no means am I recommending the film to you. But I do want to share one little piece that caused my heart to reflect when I saw the film. It's about a guy, and I'm not going to give away the plot or the meaningful pieces to it, but it's about a guy who basically worked for decades for the Ford Motor Company assembling cars. He was on an assembly line. And when he retires, he retires in the same house that he's lived in for decades and where he's raised his kids in an old neighborhood that has transitioned economically and ethnically and everything else. And the story, uh, titled Grand Torino, he has this 1972 vintage Torino that he helped assemble in the plant, and he's kept under a wrap in his garage ever since, which is kind of picturesque, I think, that he's locked in another time frame. Because he is so politically incorrect, uh, he sounds like he's out of 60s and early 70s and offends people all over the place and uh, racial slurs, ethnic slurs all over the place. It's, it's, it's sad to see that kind of uh, bankrupt personality. But the sadder piece was this. He just lost his wife, and now he just wants to be left alone. Don't want to have anything to do with his neighbors, most of whom are of different languages and ethnicities than him now, with whom he holds all kinds of prejudices. Just leave me alone. Just leave me alone. And in a neighborhood that has transitioned and now it's unkempt and unsightly all around him, he still has his manicured lawn and his freshly painted house and his workshop out in the garage and got it all together. Spends a lot of time on the front porch in the afternoons of the summer, downing a six-pack, mumbling and grumbling, watching the world go to hell. And as the story unfolds, he accidentally becomes heroic to his neighbors. And now they want to embrace him as this heroic type figure, and he's scowling and trying to brush it off and all this. And I don't want to go any further with the story, but it's this, friends. I have known so many of him through the years who basically worked a job hard, raised a family, paid off a house, and now in retirement years, pay too much attention to the lawn, piddle around in a workshop, do art framing or glass work or build model trains or play too much golf or you name it, and waste their life. Now that they have more time more discretionary time because they're not punching a clock somewhere. It's all wasted on self-centered leisure or self-centered proclivities. But friends, the reason that it's wasted at that point is because it was wasted before he ever got to the retirement years. You don't wait until you have more discretionary time to be a follower of Christ. 
You follow Him all the days of your life. And while you're in that early 20s or 30s career building time, you are following Him and serving Him in those arenas. And when you're in the more mature career and vocational times or parenting times or grandparenting times, you are invested in that particular chapter of your life. And then when you get to the retirement years, you're doing it in the retirement. It's not like you wait until you have this greater margin with time or money or whatever. If it doesn't happen back here, it doesn't happen over there. Just magically. So, here's the the bottom line, friends. Do you know your purpose and your mission? And are you living your purpose and your mission? Today, right now. Do not succumb to that Dark deception says, I'm going to get there. That's, that's on the plan. I, I want it today, this week, this season of your life. Luke 19 tells a story of, by Jesus, of a wealthy man who had a number of people that were in his employ. He decides that he's going to go off to a far land for a while, and so he gives ten of his employees a minya. Now, that piece of currency at that point in time represented, on the average, three months' wages of an individual. So imagine... Boss comes up to you and says, you know what, I'm, I'm going to go off for a while, and I'm going to give you three months' wages. Now, according to the statistics for Redmond and the East Side, the median income around here is 78000 a year. The median. That would be about 24000 if God gave you a minia today. So he gives you $24,000. He says, I'm going away, and I want you to use this $24,000, and I want you to turn it into a profit so that when I come back, I reap the rewards of what you have done with the work. Ten servants he did that with, right? Goes off, comes back, comes up to his first servant and said, uh, what would you do with that minya? And the servant said, Master, I took your one minya and made ten. That's pretty impressive, is it not? He took 24000 and made 240000 out of that? I like that guy. So did that master. He turns to the second. He says, what have you done with your minya? He said, I was able to multiply that five times. I like that. $120,000 in return comes up to the third, and you know how the story goes. What would you do with the minya? And the guy says, well, I knew you were a hard master. I knew you had high expectations. And so I did nothing with it because I didn't want to lose any of what you gave me. Here is your minya back. And the story stops there. He didn't even go to the next seven guys. And as Jesus tells this story, he refers to that servant as wicked. Wicked, not scared, slothful, sloppy, careless, oops. 
wicked. I give you this life and you sit on it? Wicked. So I'm calling for commitment today. And I'm going to be very specific. And I'm going to make a statement. And I'm going to explain that statement. And then I'm going to make that statement again. And if that statement is the expression of your heart, then I want you to respond with a resolved amen. First statement. Here's my commitment. I will treasure Christ with a whole heart. That means all the other cool stuff that's in the world, I'll designate it as cool. But it is a distant second at best to Christ. He is first, foremost, that which I love most, that which I love best. He is the treasure above all other treasures. That treasure is so great, I'm willing to give everything there is about my life, my whole life, to Him. Here's the statement. I will treasure Christ with a whole heart. Statement number two. I will serve Christ and His church. That is to say, the minyas that He's given me, talents, spiritual gifts, opportunity of the seasons of my life, time, material resource. I will serve Him. I will serve His church all the days of my life. Here's the statement. I will serve Christ in His church. Third, I will be on mission for Christ. That means I'm going to know what it is in its specificity for me. And I'll have that joined up with the mission that He's doing with everyone else around me so that we are on mission together. And I will be incarnational. I'll be the presence of Christ when I go to work, when I'm in my social and recreational circles or in the schools or in my home. I will be a carrier of the gospel of good news with the hope and the prayer that more hearts will be drawn into a redemptive relationship with Him. Here's the statement. I will be on mission for Christ. And finally, I will persevere for Christ. I will keep on keeping on. I will not quit. I will grow tired. I will grow weary. I will take hits. I will get hurt. I'll be discouraged. I'll get disillusioned. I'll have times where it just seems like it's not even worth it. But I will stay true. I will stay firm. I will persevere until there's not another breath in me. Here's the statement. I will persevere for Christ. Now, how are we going to get there? Briefly, I'm going to suggest these steps to you. They're not all-encompassing, but they're for this season right now. Friend, you've got to develop a whole life. How are you going to treasure Him with your whole life if you're not a whole person? And here's the truth, friends. 
some of us are in this room today as dysfunctional, as broken, and as busted as we were last year. Some of us are as dysfunctional as we were two years ago. Some of us are as dysfunctional as we were five years ago. Some of us have had no significant, markable lifestyle change and and Christ formation in us for the last five or ten years. So we can't treasure Him with a whole heart when we're not a whole life. We're remaining busted. And so part of what I'm going to encourage you to do and, and to make a decision about today is to fulfill your commitments. Will you develop, with God being your helper, a whole life? Will you receive healing for your past? Some of you are still busted because you're still raw and broken from hurts in the past. Now, next week, I'm going to launch out into eight weeks talking about how God wants to heal those places in your life and wants to build a whole life in you. Wants to restore to you everything this world and sin has taken from you. We're going to do eight weeks on that, and your share groups are going to be going along in concert with that. Will you engage in that? Will you invest eight weeks of your life to see God do some healing stuff for you some healing stuff for some others, and for us to develop and build whole lives. Will you renew your mind with His Word? Paul said, don't be conformed to what this world does and how this world thinks and how this world acts, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that happens by His Word. He speaks. He brings His Word and will and way into you, and that transforms you. Now, that's not going to happen by you just showing up on Sundays. As important as we think that is. Friends, if you still don't even know where to find the books in the Bible. If I said, let's go to Obadiah and you went, huh? You have got to put a discipline, a practice in your life of frequent or even daily Bible reading. You go, I don't even know where to begin. I don't even know what to do. Okay, here. www.esv.org slash Bible reading plans. Now, one of the new translations that I'm really taking with right now, and we're going to talk more about it at another time, is the English Standard Version. And uh, these, there are ten reading plans on this website that I've just given you. Ten. That basically uh, take you through the Bible in a variety of different ways. You choose the plan. And you go, well, I don't know that I'll go to it every day. There are RSS feeds. It'll email it to you and put it in your inbox every day. There's like five different options that you can click that it will help bring it to you. Okay? You've got to start saturating your mind and your heart and your soul with the Word of God. And then release His power. He's going to give you blessing. He's going to touch. He's going to look for you to release that blessing to someone else or to release that touch to someone else. Will you do that? Will you say things that are outside of your comfort zone? Will you embrace a life, either physically or through service or whatever, in ways that are outside of your comfort zone? Release His power. Listen, here's where we close. The psalmist, the, the, the man of God that knew God, who had a heart for God, said to Lord. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me. 
until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those who come. Psalm 71, 18. Oh Lord, keep giving me breath to say how great you are to one more generation, to one more person. Let's bow together. Can you say that prayer just in your heart? Oh God, give me one more breath. Give me one more day. Give me one more week. Give me another season of life that I can carry out your purpose, that I can carry out your mission, that I can be your man, your woman in this world. Breathe in me. Inspire me. Come upon me. Fill me. Use me. Change the world around me as you change the world in me.